This is Oncology Republic. I'm Felicity Nelson. This episode, we interview Richard Vines, the CEO of Rare Cancers Australia. Richard and his wife set up this organisation back in 2012. This was after his wife survived a rare form of thyroid cancer. Their organisation is a leading advocacy group for patients in Australia. On this episode, he talks about current policy developments his organisation has helped shape. The interview was conducted by one of our freelance journalists, Ben Fackelmeyer. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hello, Ben. Now, Richard, you trained as an actuary and you led a successful life in the IT industry and now you are CEO of Rare Cancers Australia. How did that happen? I met my now wife in 2001. She is a now a 30-year survivor of a very rare cancer called medullary thyroid carcinoma, which is one type of cancer of the thyroid gland. And her oncologist suggested to us in 2011 that there really was no voice for rare cancer patients and perhaps we would consider setting something up, which initially we dismissed. But after a year of thinking about it and having some exposure by then into the health world and how we might help, then we set about setting it up in 2012. And what we found was he was absolutely right. Her oncologist felt that there was no representation and that rare cancer patients were very poorly dealt with in terms of access to medicines, in terms of funded research, pretty much across the board. And if you think about it, our health system's typically structured around the premise of doing the greatest good for the greatest number. Small, rare patient populations tend to struggle to get the kind of support that larger, more prominent diseases, for example, heart disease or diabetes or breast cancer or prostate cancer get. So we set about trying to fix that and we've had some success. There's still a long way to go. Can you tell us a little about what the RCA does? The easiest way to describe it, we have a section or a department in our organisation that looks after today's patients. Typically, cancer comes to you with, aside from the disease, a whole lot of other for want of a better word, catastrophes. They will be social and emotional. They may involve employment loss. They may involve uh, considerable trauma to family members. I can recall quite clearly one patient a couple of years ago who, as a father, he had an eight-year-old son and he just couldn't work out how he was ever going to be able to tell his son that he was going to die. And there aren't many organisations that can help you walk through that. And we have trained counsellors on staff. We have trained social workers. So we're able to work with people through these kind of crises. We sort of have a catchphrase around today's patients which says, you as clinicians look after the patient and we as an organisation will try to look after the person and the family. We have connections to financial advisors, to lawyers, all of these kinds of people. Ben, it's quite heartbreaking when someone rings up and says, I just got diagnosed with adenoid cystic carcinoma. And the first thing my oncologist said to me was, I've never had one of these before. That's not what you want to hear if you're a patient, that you're the first Mm. patient um, your doctors have. And so we maintain a database of clinicians who've expressed interest in particular rare cancers because there's always somebody somewhere in Australia who's gone away and thought this is a disease worth studying and worth becoming expert in. And often there's a need to find clinical trials and, and that's the kind of service we do there. So that's helping today's patients. The other side of our work is around advocacy, where we're trying to work with and encourage government to provide more flexibility and better systems for tomorrow's patients. So in other words, let's build a health system that is responsive to the needs of people with rare cancers. And that's a big part of my work. 
We tried to provide universal health care in Australia. To do that, we have a public health system, namely through things like the PBS, that intersects with absolutely mega global corporations. So we have this natural tension between, if you like, a global capitalist industry and a universal health system that you know you could reasonably describe as socialized medicine and what we try to do is find our way through that to encourage government and industry to be respectful and to take care of people that aren't necessarily if you like commercially viable but still have a great need one of the great challenges for us is that if you are trying to get a, a particular drug or therapy funded through the PBS you might be able to get it up for breast cancer or prostate cancer but if you go back to my previous example of adenoid cystic carcinoma, which is a salivary gland cancer, basically, then you've got about 50 or 60 patients a year in Australia. And there's absolutely no incentive for a company to even put an application in, much less run clinical trials and go through the entire process that is necessary to get a drug reimbursed through the PBS. So consistently, we have those kind of patients coming to us. And all they're seeking to do is access a drug that is the same drug that if they they were diagnosed with melanoma, they'd get for free on the PBS, but they're being asked to pay $10,000 a month. The federal government is currently conducting an inquiry into the approval processes for new drugs and technologies that some are calling Zimmerman Inquiry, as federal MP Trent Zimmerman is chair of that committee. I understand the RCA has made a submission and that was perhaps influential in the creation of this inquiry. Can you uh, confirm that? I can kind of confirm it. It is a really, really important inquiry. People who wanted to know what provoked it went around and asked a whole bunch of people in Canberra why they decided to set this up. And our name apparently kept cropping up because of the advocacy that we've done over time. We've been very strong and very vocal in pointing out the challenges for people to get access to medicines for rare cancer patients. It's not just rare cancers, it's rare subtypes of common cancers. And what we're finding as we understand cancer more and more is that the target populations for individual therapies are getting smaller and smaller. So we have to change because your cancer, my cancer, Cancer is as unique to us as our DNA or our fingerprint is. And so we have to be looking at a health system down the track that is going to be able to be flexible enough and clever enough uh, to deal with that. And I think the Zimmerman inquiry is, you know, it's a fantastic initiative and will ultimately produce a report that I think will be quite influential in shaping policy as we go forward. Richard, what are you hoping to see come out of the inquiry? One of the things that we have suggested for a long time is that the TGA, our registering body, has a process of provisional registration where a drug comes in, it looks great for a particular type of cancer or a particular type of disease, and they give it a provisional registration that will allow it to be used in Australia for a period of time, and that will become a full registration subject to more evidence being presented. A TGA registration doesn't mean the drug's funded. You've still got to find your $10,000 a month. So we believe that a provisional registration should be accompanied by a provisional reimbursement where a drug that is registered can be reimbursed provided that there's reasonable evidence, but it may be that more evidence is required. And so a patient can quickly access it. Fundamentally, the problem with Australia is that we have a process that says a drug must be proved to be cost-effective before it can be funded through the PBS. And to prove a drug is cost-effective means that you must run quite an exhaustive clinical trial and you look for improved outcomes in survival and you measure that improvement and then you balance that against the increased cost. 
that can take years in its own right. It can then take years for that to be processed by the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. And then there's another discussion between the Department of Health over the final commercial contracts that exist between the government and the pharmaceutical company before a patient gets access to that medicine. And we think that is fundamentally wrong. We cannot understand why the company and the government can't have a fight. If they want to have a fight or a discussion or a negotiation around the cost that the government will pay the company for the medicine, good on them. Let's go do that. But let's not deny patients access while that's going on. Let's not sit there and watch people die. It's roughly equivalent to someone falling down in the middle of the street with a heart attack and a doctor standing next to them runs into the chemist to get a defibrillator to revive them and comes back two hours later because it took that long to negotiate the price. It's essentially what we do with cancer patients and everybody else on a daily basis. What would you say to people who might be concerned about drug safety in that sort of provisional approval period? Drug safety is something that the TGA has been phenomenally good at, and we're not suggesting that that in any way gets touched. If the TGA provides a provisional registration or a full registration, I think Australians can be pretty confident that it's safe, and the history would suggest that that's the case. The PBAC's job is not to work out how effective it is or how safe it is. The PBAC's job is to work out whether it should be funded through the PBS, and if so, at what cost. And we must be careful not to confuse those two tasks. So by the time it gets to the PBAC, we already know about the safety profile enough at least to know whether we can provisionally register a drug and get patients access to it. Exactly. And we also know that it's effective. We may not know how effective it is, but we know that it's safe and effective. Do you think there's much appetite at the government for an idea like that? I feel really confident that there's a growing recognition that we need to change. The provisional registration capability through the TGA came in a couple of years ago and everyone who's an expert you know, who works in this field knew that what we were going to be doing was just bumping the queue down the road. So previously there'd been a queue to get drugs registered with the TGA. This would accelerate those drugs, if you like, down that channel so that then there, there became a queue to get the drug reimbursed through the PBS. And I think everybody acknowledges that. We need to be astute and clever and flexible about how we make sure that the best treatments come to this country and that we can continue to fund them. We've got that capability. There's no question. We just need to have the will. There are some other ripples happening down in Canberra, and they recently announced the development of a national cancer action plan. Will you be involved in that at all? Yes, I will be. Last year, I convened an organisation that is an unincorporated organisation. It's essentially a very large committee and member-based thing called the National Oncology Alliance. One of the things that we'd observed was that there is always a continuing discussion going on between the treatment industry broadly, including the pharmaceutical industry, but not exclusively so, and the government about how well the system is working for applications to put medicines on the PBS or to put services onto Medicare and they always tend to be a highly passive aggressive process where the treatment industry people will complain that something isn't working and the government will steadfastly defend it and not a lot of progress has been made. We produced a report that looked in the future and said over the next 10 years these are these amazing technologies that are going to come on stream for cancer patients across the world. How do we build a system that is going to be able to respond to that and make sure that Australians get the best possible treatment when they're diagnosed with cancer and they have to live with the disease? 
So we produced a report called Vision 2030, which was essentially a futuristic look at cancer. And it looked at things like cell therapy, gene therapy, immuno-oncology, particularly genomics, where we're starting to understand that just because a cancer appears in your salivary gland or your breast or your prostate, it may well come from a genetic mutation that is common to all those three and therefore a treatment may be common to all those three. So we looked at all of that and we took that to the minister and we took it to Cancer Australia and the minister came back and said, this is good stuff. And he commissioned a ministerial roundtable through Cancer Australia, which is the appropriate body, to modernise our current national cancer plan using Vision 2030 and the Cancer Futures framework we articulated within that report. And we chose 10 years, Ben, because essentially, if you talk to researchers, they will typically say it's 10 years from bench to bedside, or you know, as I like to say, from lab rat to human. And that means that right today, we've got a pretty good understanding, barring something spectacular, of the treatments that will progressively become available over that time. And we're in an interesting place. We have all of these technologies coming and some of them have different delivery mechanisms to the traditional chemotherapy or you know, oral tablets, oral medications, or even with radiation oncology, we're getting huge application of artificial intelligence in that space. And they're all changing and they're becoming different. And we live in a world with the PBS, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, was really last seriously looked at in the 90s. And we've got a funny health system in Australia. It's part public health, you know, public hospitals, PBS, MBS, but then we have a huge private health industry with private hospitals. Most of our treating clinicians are in private practice. To add to all of that complexity, we have some of it funded by federal government and some of it funded by state government. And all of those things can be huge positives or huge negatives. And I wanted to make the point that if we get it right, we can have a Goldilocks system where we've got the best of all worlds. But if we get it wrong, we're going to end up with Frankenstein's health system uh, for cancer patients and nobody wants to go there. So I think that the development of a plan in the context of all of the new technologies and not looking back and trying to defend the status quo is a really positive thing that will take place over the next couple of years and, and will be really exciting to see the outcomes. What's one top outcome you'd love to see for patients with rare or less common cancers? You may be aware that prostate cancer, breast cancer and melanoma in this country have a 90% survival rate for all patients. Nine out of 10 people diagnosed with any of those will be alive five years thereafter. For rare and less common, as an average, that figure is somewhere less than half that. Your odds disappear to be less than one in two that you'll make it through five years. Our huge ambition is that in 10 years time, anyone diagnosed with any type of cancer has a 90% plus chance of a five year plus survival. We don't see why it can't be done. We think the technologies are coming both in early diagnosis and detection and in treatment and care. That's what we think as a country we should be going for, that cancer becomes something that you can live with, not something you die from. Thanks for joining us on the Oncology Republic podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Oncology Republic podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or read more on our website, oncologyrepublic.com.au.